Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Our course platform features many world-renowned wellness teachers, including Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Michael Beckwith, Brendan Burchard, and Adrian Mishler. In addition to courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Today on the show, we have Shelley Tagielski. While in grad school, Shelley took a summer internship with the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. Raised as an Orthodox Jew, each morning she would go out onto the porch and say her daily prayers. But even as she looked out at the gorgeous sunrise, she realized she was just mouthing the prayers, checking them off her list. Meanwhile, a Japanese couple would join her on the porch and sit in silence, rising with such a serene aura that she became intrigued, and eventually they introduced her to Zen Buddhism and meditation. When she returned to New York, she continued her meditation practice under the guidance of Sharon Salzberg, and meditation became her solace and emotional foundation as she climbed the corporate ranks. To help her stressed-out colleagues, she would hold meditations in the lunchroom and eventually started teaching publicly on a beach in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Six months later, that Sunday beach meditation was attracting upwards of a thousand people, inspiring her to leave her corporate job and eventually put her energy into bringing mindfulness and meditation to social justice organizations to prevent burnout and activism fatigue. And really, this is just the beginning of her journey. As you will hear, Shelley has used her experience to help victims of mass shootings and bring aid to hundreds of thousands in the time of COVID-19. I can't wait for you to hear about the work she is doing. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Around the um, idea of working closely with um, communities in need and, you know, particularly going through acute periods of collective grief. So, you know, like in Parkland, um, and, you know, can you talk a little bit about that experience of what it is like um, to work in communities that are experiencing that level of acute grief? I mean, and to what degree is kind of meditation and, and other kinds of forms of, I suppose, wellness modalities, What are they welcome? Um, how do you actually administer them? What are some of the impacts of them? How do you work with the local community and other clinicians to, you know, provide consistency? I mean, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah. 
Ah, oh, man, that's that's a really big question. And the truth is, is that there's no there's no one kind of formula. I think uh, all of us that are working in this space are very much learning how to navigate um, and to create standard operating procedures and share best practices across um, different communities. So the way that it that it works, quote unquote, um, in mass shooting in communities affected by mass shootings versus those that are, you know, experiencing the trauma literally every single day through daily gun violence right. uh, is very different. So to start with, you know, in communities affected by mass shootings, like in Parkland, you know, there's there's obviously so many different stages to grief, but the initial one being shock and rage and, and, and just like a fog. I mean, literally an entire community that's in a fog. And certainly the deeper you get into the epicenter, the more foggy it seems to be in that you just like you lose sense of time and space and what's real and what's not real. And, 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 um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because what happens is, is that you think about like the news cycle that we live in and, and these sort of, um, you know, how long a period or a news cycle actually lasts for, uh, and it really lasts until the next thing happens, right? I mean, in a sense, yeah. um, you could talk about like a shooting somewhere, but then like if there's a shooting a week later, like that becomes the next story. Or um, and so um, what happens is is that after the Parkland shooting, you know, and 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 speaking to other communities where this has happened, you know, whether it's in Pittsburgh or Sandy Hook or Columbine or even you know more recently in places like Saugus, there's there's thousands of people that just descend upon the community, people from like the media to, um, you know, people that are trying to, um, with not necessarily the best intentions, exploit the situation for their own personal gain. And then people who really do have great intentions, but they're just not, um, they're, they're just not qualified to sort of be there and offer what they're offering, but it, it's coming from a good place, if you will. Yeah. Um, and and what's, what happens is, is that it takes a while because there's no kind of proactive um, measures that are already in place. Uh, and, and this is starting to evolve and change, obviously, as mass shootings have become a more frequent occurrence in our country. But but there's no there's usually no or like organization or, or, or kind of system that's in place in the in a in municipality or in a city or a county where um, they're like, okay, here's the roadmap. This is what this is supposed to look like, and this is how we're going to vet every every therapist, every program, every dollar that's being thrown in our community. Um, and and there were there were so many people here that were offering um, really, um, I think, programs that are powerful, and some that you know were just. Um, again, just kind of fly by night and really came in and wanted to be able to say like, hey, I worked in the Parkland community. And so um, it wasn't until, you know, um, I partnered up with an organization called Survivors Empowered that I really started to understand sort of what needs to be done and how it needs to be done if we're going to be effective. So Survivors Empowered is an organization that was started by Sandy and Lonnie Phillips. And Sandy and Lonnie Phillips' daughter, Jessica, 
was uh, murdered in the Aurora movie theater shooting. And after that happened, um, they actually sued the NRA and they sold all of their belongings and decided that they were going to spend their life traveling the country and, um, you know, speaking about um, the tragedy that that occurred, but also um, helping other survivors of gun violence uh, heal. And Sandy is especially a a very big proponent of uh, trauma-informed healing modalities and making sure that uh, communities affected by gun violence and by mass shootings have access and knowledge uh, immediately because the sooner that you can get uh, access to certain therapies like, you know, EMDR or, or, you know, um, uh, somatic therapies or even um, have access to uh, trauma-informed MBSR, for example, and have community in that sense, uh, the better off you will be in the long run in terms of not hitting a wall and the, the and and experiencing really um, sometimes you know deadly consequences of of PTSD. Um, and so, what happened is is that eventually, as unfortunately our country started seeing more mass shootings, Sandy and Lonnie started to uh, immediately arrive on the scene with. Uh, with other survivors after every mass shooting. And in a sense, their organization became like the FEMA of mass shootings, Hmm. where a mass shooting would happen, and within 24 hours, they themselves and or they would dispatch other survivors who could talk to these new members of this club that nobody wants to be a part of, Hmm. that now they're members of. And so as I, um, you know, befriended Sandy and Lonnie, I really became like a resource to them and, and sort of like this conduit, this connector this, to the, the, the mindfulness world, to the meditation world, to all of these different practitioners and teachers, people like Sharon, people like John Kabat-Zinn, who um, have been my mentors, my teachers for a long time, and, and now, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to say, like, you know, uh, co-facilitators sometimes in these situations. Um, but um, it's it's very much about being able to, our work has become very much about being able to uh, build capacity, you know, build capacity within these communities very early on provide provide the resources externally and then build capacity within so that there could there could be a sustainable program that's in place that people can count on and that um, can come from survivors themselves right empower them to to also kind of teach and heal others and in doing so also heal themselves and also um, you know it it just becomes uh, I think a much more authentic way of of gaining access to to these communities um, and and speaking from a place of like I've been there and really really truly understanding where somebody is coming from and where where they've been and where they're going, which is I, I mean fortunately for me like I, I can't sit with somebody and say I know what you've been through, you know, but 
But when one of our teachers here in Parkland, for example, um, a father that, that who had one son that was murdered uh, on February 14th and one son that was injured, uh, actually goes and flies to a place like Pittsburgh or, or, or to Santa Clarita High and, and sits with a parent who just lost their son and say, I know what you've been through and here's what's going to, here's the good, the bad and the ugly. Like, this is what's going to happen. You're going to see the best in people in this way. You're going to see the worst in people in this way. And this, this is the stuff that you really, you know, don't want to know about, but you're going to have to know about because it's, you know, going to be pretty bad. And here's, here's a roadmap. Yeah. And I'm going to be your resource. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose for some people who are, of course, in that club that, no one wants to be in to they can find you know meaning in the suffering through the expression of empathy and a kind of very rare form of empathy in this particular Mm -hmm. regard i want to also ask about another dimension of care um which i think is particularly prescient right now as um as folks are protesting are doing a lot of kind of moral examination, a lot of personal inventory um, and uh, around care as it pertains to those seeking social justice, not necessarily those who have, um, you know, suffered acute loss, but those Mm -hmm. who are kind of on the front lines fighting for, social justice. Um, you know, it's long, you know, I think been the case that there is tremendous burnout rate there because it is so Mm. exhausting. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about the dimensions uh, of care there for that community and and how do you implement that? And, And how do people, you know, who might be listening, who are on those front lines, how do they administer that form of self care? Sure. Well, I think we have to start with looking at and examining the the definition of of self-care in general, right? I mean, I think we've, um, self-care, really the notion of self-care started actually out of the civil rights era um, and and in in communities of people of color because essentially for them, it was a matter of life or death in terms of not being able to seek actual care elsewhere, you know, so they kind of had to self-administer. But but what's happened is that when you kind of look at where self-care has what it's evolved to uh, in our times, there's been this like monetization, as you know, of like, you know, um, the term, but also of just the wellness industry in general. Yeah. And when you when you Google uh, the hashtag self-care, the term, the things that come up are mind-boggling because you look at the pictures of, you know, what people post with the hashtag self-care and you're like, well, wait a minute, like, that's not self-care. That's a new handbag. Like, you know, that's, that's, a, that, yeah. that's definitely not what, what I think our, our forefathers or people who kind of came up with that terminology uh, thought of when they, when they uh, defined it. But 
So, so the first thing that we have to do is kind of redefine and reclaim the definition of self-care as, as activists, right? We have to say, like, what is self-care? How are we defining it formally? And then what needs to happen is in the formalization of that is we need to create individually our own self-care plans, or our coping plans. And there's so many amazing templates that are available and that are out there and that I even use uh, when I'm teaching workshops, for example, um, to get people to really sit down and think about not just what would define in a, in a perfect world what their self-care plan would look like, but also what are the obstacles and challenges that would prevent them from enacting those things, right? So if it's, I need, I don't have time because I don't have a babysitter or um, I, I don't have the finances to do something like take a yoga class or wh- whatever, whatever it is that, that defines um, what their obstacles are. But in doing, in, in formalizing it, in writing down the things that um, should be in our self-care or coping plans and in identifying the, um, the challenges what happens next is a really important step. And this is where I think um, the activist community, right, and, and organizations are able to um, shift the self-care um, pursuit from being individualistic to becoming communal. And in doing so, this is where it becomes, I think, really much more impactful and more sustainable. Uh, and realistic in its pursuit, because the term self-care, just in saying it, the word self is in there. And and the reality is, is that in the in the, the work that we're doing now and the, the work that activists that are on the front lines that 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 are they're doing today, but that a lot of people have been doing for years now. If they haven't, you know, if, if it was an individualistic pursuit, it would never work. But if it's communal suddenly the burden, that boulder that needs to be kind of carried up the mountain becomes becomes much lighter, right? So what I do is, you know, we def- we when I work with, with different organizations and with activists is we define a self-care plan, we create a coping plan that's formalized, we share the coping plans in a, a formalized group. Uh, we develop and define formalized communities of care. And we share these coping plans with each other. Why? For a number of reasons. First, because it creates accountability for ourselves. Secondly, it, uh, it actually helps to unload, uh, you know, I mean, lessen the burden. And, and, and actually, people can start to pick up some of these, on these challenges or obstacles that we may have and say, hey, you know what, every Wednesday night, I can actually babysit for you when you go do that thing that you need to do mm-hmm. in order to get that done, right? And so there, suddenly this, there becomes this like shared um, experience and, and, and the pursuit of self-care becomes communal and it becomes realistic. And then what happens is that it becomes um, sustainable and we recognize that we don't have to have feelings of guilt attributed with taking to taking a pause because I think that's oftentimes what happens in a lot of these uh, organizations and with activists. It's like, if I don't, if I'm not out there every day, you know, there's a lot of self judgment of like, 
you know, I, I wasn't out there and therefore I'm not doing the work. Uh, I've, I've taken a pause for myself and, you know, I'm letting people down. And, but if you're, if you're kind of like pursuing this in a, in a communal setting, then all of a sudden people are having conversations of, you know, uh, Jeff, you've been out there for, for the last three days. You really like suddenly your community is looking out for you and has your back. And they're saying, you know, you don't need to come the next day because we have somebody else that's going to be on the front lines instead of you, because you need to replenish and you need to fill your cup or you need to take care of your family or you need to, you know, kind of tend to yourself Mm -hmm. so that you can show up and be whole the next day. So it becomes like just a shared experience. Uh, And I really think that we just have to kind of eradicate this term of self-care and shift more into like this, the conversation of communities of care instead, if we're going to build this resilience. You know, I I think it's interesting when you talk about sort of your experience on the beach um, and I guess what I might call sort of the viral spread of that community Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. your ability to, to, I guess, inspire people to to spread ideas. in a very decentralized way. I suppose that's also kind of how germ theory works and viruses (laughs) um, spread in a very decentralized way. And I use that as sort of a clumsy entree um, into COVID, um, which obviously, you know, just changed reality for kind of humanity at a global scale that no one could have ever predicted. and uh, and gave birth to an idea that um, that you executed that is absolutely brilliant. But kind of as you're telling your story, fairly organic and not particularly surprising that you did it. Um, and so what I think is fascinating about what you did is it's almost just how simple it is. Um, yeah. And um, in terms of being able to sort of enable that connection. And I guess if you don't mm. mind, and I'm sure you've done it 10,000 yeah. times now, uh, or 150 some odd thousand times, <laughs> given how many people you've, you've um, enrolled. But can you just explain kind of literally how it works, um, you know, and, and just the mechanics of Pandemic mm-hmm. of Love? Sure. Uh, so like you said, you know, it's, it's a very simple, simple concept. And um, I, it started around my kitchen table. Um, my uh, community here in South Florida uh, was starting to um, bubble up with uh, fear. Uh, and uh, we're obviously really concerned legitimately uh, about stocking up as we were planning to shelter in home in the month of March. Um, Many people who are hourly wage workers and who can barely make it to the end of the week or rely on tips. And, and uh, you know, they, they were like, okay, great. How are we supposed to stock up? You know, like we, we can't even get to the end of the week at this point. Um, And so uh, 
immediately, you know, like, I guess I've also sort of self-examined like my default modes at this point of like what my reaction and response is. And, and I think that it's, it's really interesting because like when, when I see that somebody is in need or uh, certainly people I know, and even people I don't know, the default mode or the first question that I always ask is like, how can I be of service? Like, how can I fix this problem? You know? And, and I think about it from a very empathic point of view. And so I immediately thought, well, there's a lot of people in our community who can help, you know, who have privilege, whose life won't be affected, who can basically fill up 27 fridges and they, it won't even make a dent in like their, their, uh, you know, the the way that they live their life. Um, and so I just created two, two Google forms. I literally went to Google forms and I created a, a form that said give help and a form that said get help. And there was no formal name. It wasn't called pandemic of love, but I just introduced these two forms using a 40 second video on my social media account to my community. And, uh, in, in, in the introduction of the forms, I basically said, you know, it's really about tapping into the fact that there, there can be love over fear and that, um, that the COVID-19 isn't the only thing that can go viral, that a lot of positive things can go viral too, like hope and like faith and like love and love can actually not just be contagious, but it can be the cure. And so we should start a pandemic of love. And that's kind of how this whole thing really started, because those forms wound up within 24 hours being shared dozens of times and hundreds of times and then thousands of times and eventually made it, um, you know, on into the hands of, of different celebrities or people that have uh, circles of influence, you know, people like uh, Kristen Bell and Chelsea Handler and Deborah Messing and Maria Shriver. And, you know, they they, they shared uh, the platform and we wound up having to eventually build an actual website. Um, and also uh, we wound up with individuals all around the globe who reached out and said, wait a minute, how do I now do this in my community? Like, this is a great idea. Can I, can I do this in St. Louis? Can I do this in Salt Lake city? How about Atlanta? And so we started to um, myself and the few volunteers that I, that I, um, uh, recruited in the very first few days when we were kind of matching people in our own community, uh, we started to train uh, other communities on our platform and creating sheets for them, give help, get help links in these micro communities, as we call them. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the last 12 weeks, we've made um, 187,000 matches, which means that there have been at least 300 and uh, 70, what is that? 74,000 human connections, right? Cause there's a, a person at least on each side of the equation who have transacted over $25 million in transactions. The average transaction is $150. Sometimes it's less, but sometimes it can be up to, you know, um, $5,000 even. Right. And, um, and the, what 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 the transactions do is it's a direct transaction. We're not a nonprofit. No money ever hits my account or any of our vol or over 650 volunteers' accounts. It just what we do is we make, as they say in Yiddish, we make shidduch. We make matches. We basically are matchmakers professionally. Um, we essentially take a person in need 
look at their case, and then partner them up with a donor or a patron that is willing to or capable of filling that need up. And and then we, we connect them by email or by text message, and we say, hey, you know, Jeff, meet, meet John. Uh, John's a single dad with three kids, and he works in the restaurant industry and has been unable to um, earn a living over the last several weeks. And he's indicated on his form that he needs help with, um, you know, his health insurance premium and a utility bill. And then here's his phone number. Please connect with him. And here's some ways you can transact with him. And, and, and basically then you, Jeff, would call John up and have a conversation with him and learn a little bit more about him. And he would learn about you. And what's happened is that aside from getting bills paid and getting, um, you know, relief, financially speaking, uh, people have been feeling connected, seen and heard by perfect strangers. And so many people have used the cliche phrase, you've restored my faith in humanity, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody could actually, who doesn't know me, could care about me. Or, um, you know, we've shattered also a lot of, um, you know, sort of these stigmas about the other type of person like we've we've connected people who are liberals with people who are very conservative we've connected people who um are of different faiths and of different backgrounds and um you know and 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 sexual orientations and and age groups and it's really incredible because in spite of all that and what we think you know makes us all so different we realize that there's this like common humanity and, um, and, and friendships have been formed and people FaceTime and they send care packages to each other and paintings to each other and songs to each other. It's incredible. Hmm. The stories that have come out of it have been absolutely amazing. So that's been really the, I would say, intentional byproduct of it was always about forming human connection because I can tell you as an Israeli that was raised um, in a very hawkish right-wing family uh, in Jerusalem, uh, who, uh, you know, was taught from a very young age that um, that my Palestinian brothers and sisters, uh, you know, on the other side of now that w- the wall, um, are, you know, which want to basically hurt me and kill me, that um, that when you can kind of shatter those beliefs by connecting with people, and that's really what I had to do, you know, in my own personal journey, which is like another story for another day. But but just by connecting with with the people that you think are so different than you, you realize they're not that different at all. And that, I think, is really going to be the saving grace of humanity. I think Brene Brown says it's hard to hate up close. Um, and I think what you created, as, as you describe it, is not just a model for giving, but a model for empathy and conversation and connection. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as it specifically pertains to giving, you know, from the little research I've done about philanthropy and altruism, um, it is always more effective to give to an individual or uh, something directly where you can actually see the impact of your 
generosity. Right. Um, and, and there are other organizations that, that do facilitate that kind of, of giving. Um, but I think that this goes one step beyond that um, because you're actually facilitating a direct conversation. Um, and that is, um, as you say, um, you know, transcendent and, and certainly helps us to understand and to recognize our common humanity in a time where, you know, where that's very, very difficult that even kind of in public, often our acts are private, you know, like social media is really just private acts acting in public in some ways. Um, and that our relationship with each other has, you know, all sorts of middlemen from the media to the advertisers that are supporting that media, you know, that that's how we know each other, you know, is through depictions that we see, uh, kind of through our media instead of kind of directly. So it's, it's really, um, it's really fascinating. And I, I wonder, because, you know, you, I was going to ask you, but you already addressed it, that you, you seem to be attracting people across the political spectrum or, or divide. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, I wonder, um, you, you know, if you've thought about this at all, because it's a very interesting form of redistribution of wealth. And it's a redistribution mm-hmm. of wealth that actually feels very honest and transparent to people. And just that idea of redistribution of wealth generally or oftentimes in our society goes to socialism and <laughs> communism and mm-hmm. big and mm-hmm. government and you know and, and I wonder why this is so Im- effective versus you know a government saying like hey you're going to pay your taxes and we're going to redistribute the wealth and make <laughs> a more equal society. Um, you know, is this a model for redistribution in a way? I mean, um, I wonder if you've thought about that in any way. I've totally thought about it because everybody, you know, asks me, um, you know, sort of like, what's your long-term plan for pandemic of love? Is this just going to last for the pandemic or is it going to be after it's over? And, and the first thing I tell them, of course, is, Hey, I'm a mindfulness teacher. So I'm only thinking about the present moment, but if I do think about (laughs) the moment beyond that moment. Um, I will tell you that like sort of my big, hairy, audacious goal as, as Vern Harnish, you know, says, um, is that I would love to be able to see an institutionalization of mutual aid across communities in the world, but certainly in this country. So that just like every uh, municipality has a city hall, right? We should also have a formalized mutual aid community uh, that's institutionalized in some way, and it's just a, a way that 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 we as a community uh, transact um, hmm. and and can 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 give give help and get help. And um, yeah, I think that the redistribution of wealth as it's done uh, by government is 
we all know there's so much red tape, there's corruption, you really don't know where the money's going, like you, so I think there's a lot of skepticism because, you know, it's like once, once bitten, twice shy, but really in our case, it's probably been like thousands of times bitten, so we're, we're very shy at this point, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of skepticism there, but I think that when you yourself are transacting, like when you buy a meal for somebody, when you're able to, you know, um, just make sure that a person has gas in their car or you're able to, um, you know, pay for a funeral. I mean, God, I can't even tell you how many funerals we've, our donors have paid for. Hmm. There's so many undocumented workers who um, don't qualify for state subsidies because they're undocumented. So they can't prove that even though they make less than X amount of dollars, you know, in certain states. Uh, maybe that's not the case in California, but certainly places like New York and Connecticut and New Jersey area. And so we've um, had so many people that have reached out to us out of desperation to say, my father just died of COVID-19 and we're already suffering so much, but we don't have money to reclaim his body and give him a proper burial and cre- or cremation and, and, and just, you know, have some dignity and honor and 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 so we've had so many donors pay for for funerals and it's like it's it's um the feeling that somebody gets when they're able to call that funeral home and and pay that bill hmm. and and then have a conversation with that family and learn more about the, the you know that person's father and 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 who they were and what they meant to them i mean you know what 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 more could there be in terms of like just feeling good about what you did and wanting to do more of that. Yeah, those stories need to be documented. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, so I, I know you're writing a book, um, or, mm-hmm. and I don't know where you are in that process, um, but I've been thinking a lot about this lately, um, and I wonder if you have comment on it and if it um, has any relevance to why you want to write a book. Um, is it's around the importance of words and mm-hmm. like right now, um, I think words are so important because people are feeling so much. There's so much emotion mm-hmm. and words can often serve as vessels for feelings and help us to have those conversations so I'm curious where you are in that process and, and why you're writing the book and how sure. you think about words. So my book is called Sit Down to Rise Up. And it's really about the journey, uh, the, the inner journey, right? The, the journey to the me. And then the, the, the way that I see it, the responsibility to then once you are in that journey and once you're kind of, you know, healed in some way, even if you have like a bunch of cracks still, that you have a responsibility to continue on the journey to the we, which is a communal journey, and then how to translate that communal journey into um, the journey of us, which is a movement based. Mm-hmm. And so the way that the reason why I wanted to write this book was because I wanted to use words to be able to provide 
a roadmap and an actual structure that people could hopefully use to um, go beyond this kind of self-help culture that we've perpetuated and that we have, where it's just about like, oh, I need to do the inner work and I'm working on myself. But because my, like, the way I see it is like, well, what is the point of working on yourself? It's like you don't actually then show up in the world and then it, it impacts others. You know, if it only is affecting yourself or like just your immediate circle and you're not continuously expanding the circle, like why are you really doing the work on yourself, you know, and then questioning that. So so for me, you know, the, the timing uh, of writing this book is really important because I think that um, we are in this time period where where so many people are like all about doing the inner work and certainly working on the outer part of that as well, right? With with physical fitness and, and wellness in that sense as well. And I want to like make that more tangible to the the fabric of society that we're living in. And like so so great. Work on yourself, but like how does that impact the rest of the world and how you show up and how can you formalize the structures to do it. So um that that's really, you know, for me the key. And and I feel like, to be honest with you, especially having spent so much time in communities affected by grief uh, and loss, um, that the best language of loss ever is actually just showing up in silence. Um, there's been no. Uh, sometimes there are no words that you could ever say, you know, that will take the hurt or the pain away. Um, and I think as we say to bring up Brene Brown again, as she says, rarely, if ever, do do words actually like, you know, make the hurt or the pain go away or solve a problem. But, uh, um, but, but just kind of showing up and being there and being able to like hold space and look in somebody's eyes and have empathy for them, uh, again, invoking the communal effect of things, is is I think more more powerful than words. So what I want to do is use words to help create those. They were really um, inspire people to uh, seek community and inspire communities to seek to create movements to help to really bring about the world that we want to be living in. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you want to learn more about Shelly, check out her website at ShellyTagielski.com. And if you are able in this moment to give, or if you are in need, go to PandemicOfLove.com. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and right now, let's be there for each other. Mm-hmm.